your nomad consultant here and in today's nomadic delight podcast i sit down with ahmed abdullahi a project manager at airbus in this episode we discuss the procurement and airline industry if you enjoyed today's show spread the love by sharing it with your friends finally make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing to our show on apple spotify youtube and please leave me a review. Peace and love. Okay, guys, today in Nomadic Delights, my guest is Ahmed Abdullahi. He is a project manager at Airbus. He is a highly experienced procurement professional with a career spanning more than 12 years in supply chain management. Welcome to Nomadic Delights. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Mohammed. Nice to be with you today. Ah, sweet. Well, first of all, I would like to start off by asking you to introduce yourself to my listeners. If you can please start off by telling us a bit about yourself. My name is Ahmed Abdullahi. I'm based in the UK, in London. Uh, prior to that, I was based in various countries across Europe and in the UK. I've been with a company called Airbus now for just over a decade working with them within their supply chain organization. Sweet, sweet. Oh, that's nice. Well, I mean, perfect. I mean, that's the reason why I got you on the show, because today's podcast is about the airline industry. But before we dive into that, I would like to know what is procurement and what led you to enter this world? Simply put, procurement is the process of getting goods your company requires. And it's uh, a part of the wide organization called supply chain management which is the extensive infrastructure needed to get those goods. Mm -hmm. So you simplify procurement as the word begins with procure means you buy something. Right. So that's, but I'm part of the supply chain organization, which is the wider infrastructure that wraps itself around that organization. And ultimately it's responsible for the goods and services a company requires mm -hmm. and have that infrastructure behind it to provide those services. Right, right, nice. And so, so what led you to enter this world? So, uh, at least now I understand what procurement is. But why did you choose to become, you know, a professional in this industry? Truth be told, it was actually more of a, um, a coincidence and a, I would say more of a luck that I ended up in this organisation. <laughs> I mean, at the time I, I was at university in Bristol and I was studying information management, and. During our third year, we had the work placement, and one of my housemates at the time, a very good friend of mine still, um, said he was going to get a job working for Airbus, which is a very large employer in, Air, uh, in Bristol at the time. Mm. I hadn't thought too much about career in aerospace. At the time, I, I thought I was going to go to banking, and hence why I was doing business information systems. And I said, no, I think I'm going to go to HSBC. Yeah. And that was where my time was located. So when eventually we did our placement year and we came back to do our final year, the feedback that I, my, my friend and I at the time shared was that he had a fantastic experience in the aerospace for that one-year internship. Mm. Mine wasn't so pleasant, I would put it that <laughs> and, and I realized that's not something, you know, I genuinely thought hard and long about it. And I thought that's not something that I would particularly wish to take upon as a career. And like most of us at the age of 21, 22, you know, we, we're still going through that assessment as to what do we really want to do with our life? 
True. I, I went through banking because at the time I thought it was, um, you know, to use a Theresa May phrase, it was a strong and stable profession. <laughs> Remember, this is just before the credit crunch in 2008. So, um, <laughs> you know, it, it turned out to be a blessing after all. But oh. at the time, well, that's where I was going to head. And then my, my friend said to me, you know, you should really consider looking into Airbus um, after we graduate. Mm. So I thought, well, I thought about it at the time. We didn't really do too much about it. And then after we graduated, he got himself a nice job in the graduate scheme with Airbus. Right. And within a few weeks, I, I decided to take that summer break. I thought I earned my time off. Definitely. And he came back and said, um, you know, I've got there's a project going here. I've told them about you. I think you'd be fantastic. Why don't you come and join me? And I was like, you know what? I'm in between my minds what I want to do. So mm. I'll, I'll, I'll do it and I'll earn a bit of cash in the meantime. Yeah. Um, well, that was 12 years ago now. So wow. <laughs> uh, that was 12 years ago. It turned out that I, I actually found something that I enjoyed. Uh, particularly in Bristol, where Airbus was located at the time that I was there, you had the last Concorde to ever fly housed in there. I learned wow. the history and legacy of the aerospace industry um, initially in the UK and how that spread across the globe. You know, we had some um, legacy airplanes, one of the, some of the first airplanes to actually ever fly. Mm. So suddenly, I, I, without knowing and slowly, gradually, I, I became a plane spotter. <laughs> Uh, and it really became a passion after that. And, you know, I remember one day while I was in, we had a runway, by the way, at the time, because obviously you need the airplanes wow. to land. And I recall seeing a, a plane called a Vulcan bomber, which was a plane used by the RAF in the UK during the Cold War. And this plane was so incredible. And I mean, it's, if you imagine what the Concorde looks like, mm. That shape, but a, a militarized version of it that flew in the 60s. I mean, you thought, wow. how did they build something like it in the 1960s? And they were flying a demo to where I was working at the time, and the plane came to a low altitude, and you could see where it was. Yeah. Then, as soon as it went to the afterburners, all the cars parked in the area within a mile radius, all the alarms went off. <laughs> And this plane didn't even enter supersonic at that stage. And I thought, you know what? That's just the coolest thing I've ever seen. It's incredible. And for me at that point, I said, you know what? I, I like this place. Not many people can look outside their office and see it as a day, as they're part of their day-to-day -day activity. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to give this uh, company a go. And like I said, 12 years later, I'm still here. Uh, honestly amazing story i i i'm loving it because it's true like you said it well whereas people are used to just seeing their standard pigeon outside you got to see a cool plane but the thing is you, you've come to my next question about the whole why you choose airbus and but now i understand and i totally agree with you because if you haven't found a job where you spend most of your waking hours there's no need to move on i mean i'm i was going to the reason why I was going to ask the next question about why you chose Airbus, now I understand, is that would you be tempted to go, I mean, there's only, everyone knows there's only two airlines, I'm sorry, sorry two two main and suppliers, uh, Boeing and Airbus. Would you ever be tempted to go to the evil dark side or would you be, how would you? <laughs> you know, oh yeah. We all have to be honest to ourselves and say, we're all aspirational. We all want to progress in life. And, you know, if the right opportunity came up, yeah. then I'd be, you know, I would be naive to say, no out of principles to airbus i would not go there no. but i think this but i think at the same time is we all have to realize that the same as coca-cola and pepsi mm. there's probably an agreement between airbus and boeing of not taking each other's staff <laughs> so 
adding my CV to say Airbus for the last 10 years probably would not open doors for me at Boeing. <laughs> no, mate, totally understand it. Yeah, Man United, Liverpool, Barcelona, Real Madrid, you know, but no. <laughs> Absolutely. So, um, although there's nothing officially that says we can't go and work at Boeing, yeah. At the same token, I, I think there might be some sort of an unwritten rule, <laughs> agreement of um, don't take our staff, and we will not take your staff. <laughs> no, no, totally agree. I mean, you've come to the next point perfectly because my next question was, I mean, you've been there for 12 years, and it's, it's really, I mean, look in my own perspective where I move, you know, I move around a lot. One thing I've respected is I've seen you've been with this company for 12 years in this day and age that is very rare now my question about this is would you recommend other professionals to develop their careers with one company or to move around in order to you know get better pay packages what what would you recommend in, in this day and age one of the things i would say to you is um and this is actually something that i experienced with my younger brother who's also who's in the aerospace engineering industry mm having a conversation a few years ago where he was very tempted to go and leave his company to go to another company because they offered him a slightly more money at the time. Mm. And I recall cautioning him and saying to him, yes, they are offering you that additional money, but you have to weigh the risk versus the benefit, Correct. like we all do in life in general. Mm-hmm. And I said, this company you work for at the moment have put you through the graduate scheme. They are developing you and they want to keep you for the long run. They spend a lot of money, and yes, we could all be complacent and we can all fall under the cracks and not develop our careers. Yeah. But I said, you have a very strong chance within that company that you work for of developing and moving up the chain versus going to an unknown entity, particularly in the aerospace and engineering world where there's a limited companies out there that Mm. have the the size, you know, banking, finances, I could say you could probably move around a bit more flexibly, but in the aerospace industry, if you end up working for the top-end companies, Mm. you just have to be very cautious if you say, I'm going to leave this company to go for the other company, Mm. I'm going to get an extra 5-10% pay rise. You Mm. have to make that judgment call carefully and calculated. And what I would say to everybody is assess where you are on that particular time in your life and make that judgment call and say, have I managed to get all I can out of my current company? Mm. Have I developed myself? Have I got all the skills, all the training that they've given me? Is there more that I could do? But also look around your company. If you have, if you, you know, for Airbus, I think we have globally 135,000 employees. Mm. We live pretty much every continent on the planet. And look around internally. Is there a mobility program you have which allows you to move around the company? And then say, okay, well, versus all that information I have internally, what are the benefit of this unknown company? Where are they financially? Mm-hmm. And, and going back to my younger brother's example, it turned out as soon as he left and went to the other company, what was promised to him, as often the case during the HR discussions, yeah. did not replay into a reality subsequently. So he realized that actually the grass is not necessarily greener on the other side. Mm-hmm back to me and said, oh, I'm thinking of going back to my old company now. Luckily, it worked out quite well as they knew who he was and they welcomed back to the But again, I'm just saying to you, if you are going to do and say, I'm going to change companies, whatever you agree with that HR organization, make sure it's ironclad, it's written down, you know what the roles and responsibilities are going to be, the remun- 
remuner remuneration, which I couldn't say there, yeah, is agreed upon in advance and is yes. recorded. Yes. Um, too often people rely on good words during an interview and handshake, but particularly working within the legal structure over the last few years, I've learned that if it's not written down and you haven't got the paper to back it up, uh, it really, you haven't got much leg to stand on. So just be careful. Yeah. And in general, I, I think you could all benefit from expanding your experience and not staying in the same position forever. No, honestly, um, Ahmed, that's some great advice. I, especially the fact that you were able to give it with example of your of your younger brother, and I'm really happy to hear that he was able to come back. But that's that for me. It kind of sums it up perfectly. Always look at all the options before you decide to jump. So it's good. And and if the company are investing in you, why why leave them? So that's no, that's great advice there, Ahmed. Now. If, for example, I was a you know young graduate, or even if I didn't go to university, just finished school, and I want to become a procurement professional, what advice would you give me starting out? So if you were looking at career in procurement, and if you're starting off your career at the beginning, one of the first things that I would recommend you do is the what is called SIPS. It's a particular qualification catered for supply chain. Okay. So it's stands for the Chartered Institute of um, Purchasing and Supply Chain. Mm. That actually, particularly for procurement, opens more doors than unless you have a specific degree in supply chain and procurement. Right. What that does ultimately is it's almost a vocational training wrapped around academia, them showing you what procurement is, supply chain is, what are the fundamentals. Mm. And I, if I recall from memory, the, the top end, which is SIPS level six, is the equivalent of a master's degree. Sweet. So what some companies now do is they, so, sorry, some universities, what they do now is they offer a one-year SIPS slash master's degree. So you come out with a, a degree in master's with your SIPS qualification. Mm. And that means you now have the necessary um, procurement uh, vocational experience along with the uh, your degree at the same time nice. so that maybe that might be an option for people to consider um there is also um doing an intern which if you're at the right age and if you mm. can afford potentially to spend maybe um a one year or six months as an intern i know mm. airbus for example they offer a um a one-year work placement for those graduates who are in in their third year and also they offer an intern for um, those um, um, students that are in just doing their A-levels. Mm, so nice. If you're, if you're a 15, 16-year-old and you're debating what do I want to do and you have a summer, well, rather than just sitting down at mom and daddy's house and just watching TV, mm -hmm. try and get an internship with one of these companies and just see it for the summer. You know, you get a little bit of pocket money, yeah. uh, you learn something, but more importantly, you make connections and networking. Nice. No, no, honestly, that's some great advice, especially the fact that you have the internship and, and as well the apprenticeship. I'm sorry, not the, the, the one year placement. Okay, so that's from, from someone giving advice. You've been with Airbus for now 12 years. Is what unique skill do you believe has helped you become successful in this industry? You know, in the supply chain and mm -hmm. particularly procurement, one of the things you have to learn quite early on is you have to be thick-skinned, okay? <laughs> you really, 
there are naturally people are more comfortable and some people are not comfortable with this arena. There are those who are comfortable haggling and then mm -hmm. there are those who are actually not comfortable at haggling. So you have to ask yourself, you know, what are you as a person? Because while you could do all the, the training behind the scenes and the company can train you and give you all the training you need and all the development you need, ultimately, if you don't feel comfortable to stand in front of somebody else and say, I don't want to pay you that price, I want to pay you that price, mm. and you can't haggle that, then you may have to think, maybe that's not a career for me. <laughs> you know, I remember many years ago going to um, Egypt, yeah. and I know the Egyptians absolutely love negotiating, you know? For real, they do. Who, um, who's a French manager who's been to North Africa because of their connection. And he just said, it's incredible. These people love to haggle about everything. And I said, I'm very familiar with that practice. So you, you have to naturally have that ability to talk and be comfortable to talk and negotiate, you know, because that's what procurement often is. It's all yeah. about trying to get the best price that you want to pay for something. Mm. And often, while you will have the legal documents behind you and commercial templates behind you, you don't have that face-to-face -face discussions with people uh, where you have to agree, do I want to pay you this price or do you, are you going to deliver it at that price? Mm. But that's what I would say is that it's something that really comes either naturally for some people or it doesn't. Mm. Again, going back to my younger brother and um, his experience, I know when he was doing his graduate program, um, one of the things they do in the company he works for, like in Airbus, they give you a two-year rotation where you work in different parts of the company, mm. familiar with the different functions yes. to give you understanding of what the company does. And I recall talking to him where he said to me, you know, I really hate procurement. I don't like working in supply chain. He's an engineer by trade. He's an engineer <laughs> experience. And he felt comfortable in his engineering world. But when he had to come out of it and work in procurement, yeah. he just said, I hate it. And I said to him, naturally, because I know who you were as a person. But, you know, he said, this whole thing about negotiating on everything and debating on everything, I'm an engineer. You know, I... I don't want to have that time to be having those discussions. So again, it, it depends on that individual's mindset of what you naturally feel comfortable with. So true. I, I would say don't do something that you as a person that you feel is completely against your personality because you, you'll just get a situation where you may not get the best out of yourself and then that would potentially lead to you not feeling satisfied with what mm. you do. So true. No, I know. I think that's actually a, 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 how would you say a good, a good, good point, because if, if you don't love what you're doing, then it's going to be hard to actually, you know, be successful. The, okay. So before this interview, I did a quick research on your LinkedIn profile and I saw that at one point you had moved to Germany. And for me, I would love your perspective on this experience because then UK, Germany, big different, I mean, ball game. Well, do you, do you know, the funny thing is when I, Again, in Airbus and working for big companies that have multiple sites, I think that's one of the one of the benefits of working for those companies is mm. you get that opportunity. Mm -hmm. And it, it, like most things, it, it wasn't something that I initially planned. Yes, I was talking to my manager one day, and he said to me, "By the way, I'm having a conversation with an old manager of mine who's now based in Germany in Munich, yeah. and he's looking for somebody, and I think you'd be a good candidate." And that conversation began at the beginning of October 20, I think, 10 or 11. I don't recall the moment. Okay. And in three weeks, I was packing my bags to go into Germany. <laughs> so, wow. 
And initially it had to be housed in a hotel because it, it, was, it was so sudden, it was unplanned yeah. that um, they had to put me up in a hotel while I, you know, settled and found somewhere to live. <laughs> but I, I have to be honest, at the time I, I hated the role that I was doing because it was in finance and I, and I found it very boring. Although mm. I, I, I could do the job, I just found it not for me. I'm a supply chain manager. Yeah. I'm, I, I'm not a finance. I, I found yeah. it just uninteresting. Yeah. But the benefit of hindsight, I think, is one of the best things that I've done. One, it allowed me to leave my comfort zone. Mm. My family, my friends, go to somewhere where I had no establishment, no recognition. Nobody knew who I was. Yes. And start fresh. So that, that's quite hard in life in general when you have to start fresh again. So true. But also, you know, uh, simple things like going to the shop and trying to buy food and not being able to speak the language. I'm <laughs> pointing to things, you know, and I have a sympathy for those that go to different countries and have yeah. to forget that the world doesn't always speak English. Yes. So it, it was really a challenging time. But with the hindsight, it's probably one of the best things that I could have done because what it allowed me to do is A, put that in my CV and yes. therefore people see that I have done that. Two, put me out of my comfort zone where I didn't have to work in the function that I felt most comfortable with in procurement and supply chain. It meant I could see myself what my limitations were, but also what I enjoyed and did not enjoy. Nice. So uh, if you have an opportunity to do something that may not be what you think you like, give it yeah. a try. You know, if, especially if it's under the safe confines of having a, a one-year secondment with your company whereby if you don't like it, you can always go back to your previous role. It mm -hmm. just means that you develop and learn what you like and what you don't like. Um, but culturally speaking of the Germans, I, I found them to be very similar, funnily enough, to the British than <laughs> they are. Yeah, I initially thought I was going to be a cultural clash. Yeah. Those that I met I actually have a similar humor and personality to the British than I realized. <laughs> I, the French, who I often go and visit, and the Spanish are completely more different yeah. than they are to the British. So, again, it, again, it's all about you know your perceptions of different cultures and society. Yes, work with them. I, I left afterwards, and I said, you know what, guys, you really are no different than the people back home. <laughs> No, no, that, that's good to hear. Especially Munich. I mean, it's a huge, huge, huge place, and I'm no, I'm happy to hear that. And I, I do love that advice you put, where you're telling people get out of your comfort zone because that would actually, you know, would push you to to better yourself in regards to skills. So no, that's that's good to hear. Okay, bit of a big one. So it's kind of covering two main topics. Okay, now as you're already fully aware, in the UK we got Brexit, but we're also dealing with the impact of COVID nineteen. What I need to understand, you know, will this be a blessing or a curse for the airline industry? <laughs> well, that's a very, very interesting question you put out there. And I think if you could have Brexit on its own, and I mm. think we've had it now in 2016, and a lot of effort has gone into the world globally to deal with the aftermath. And I think just when a lot of people were just trying to get over that hurdle and understand what it is, it's almost like somebody drowning in swimming wise and then as they manage to get some air out eventually then suddenly to be hit by another wave <laughs> to go back <laughs> under the water that's nice. what you know, has done to the industry and and i think it's really an unknown quantity at the moment because particularly for ourselves in the uk mm. where the relationship with the eu is fundamentally important 
because uh, they are our largest trading partners across the board. A lot of um, companies in the UK and their supply chain are inter interwoven with the EU supply chain, and particularly in um, aerospace and in the um, automobile industry, where you know they operate with just-in-time supply chain models where parts and components arrive literally moments before they're about to be integrated. Wow. It's going to be a very, very difficult process. And then add that to the COVID-19 mm -hmm. and having a situation where planes and cars are grounded and not being sold, that will have a knock-on effect across the supply chain over not a year, maybe not two years, but potentially five years. Um, because, again, if you imagine, uh, particularly for um, airplanes, you know, you don't build an airplane overnight. It's something that has been planned for months. It's been in the pipeline for years, potentially. Mm. If that plane has stopped. It will, it will take another two, three months to get that ball started again. But at that same time, you will have that bunching up of all other requirements at the same time. So if you imagine um, a timeline-wise where the time frame is being condensed continuously, then you, you'll get to a point where now you suddenly feel, okay, something has to give. Mm. And that's where we are going to be with COVID-19 and Brexit. It's, you know, the, the industry can handle one, I think, at the moment, but to be asked to deal with both in a negative ways at the same time, it, it just will probably, in my humble opinion, add more difficulties than, than needs to be. You know, mm. COVID-19 is as they would say in contractually, is an act of God. Yes. So therefore, we'll just have to deal with it as it is. Brexit is an act of man-made. Mm. And you have to think <laughs> carefully of how do we manage these two underlining issues yes. that at the same time, are, you know, somebody put it perfectly to me the other day and he said, we have a crisis management team, but they've been busy with Brexit over the last four years. Now they're being told to work on COVID-19. I've only got five of them. So which one do they prioritize? <laughs> and, and I think that's what you'll find across the board for all companies is mm. management teams who have not been called upon for years suddenly being told, by the way, you need to deal with these two issues that are you know, fundamentally changing the industry. Yeah. Uh, uh, supply chain, particularly, the strains you will feel and you'll find going forward is a lot of those little companies may not survive post-COVID-19 mm -hmm. and Brexit. So if you have a, a, you know, for the sake of argument, a John Smith company who's a, a one-man operation who provides a very critical key item for aerospace or for the automobile industry, mm. if that company goes out of business because of COVID-19, what you will need is time to develop a replacement ability and that will take some time and then that taking time will have a delay on production lines production line delays obviously have impact on your bottom line so there's a financial impact there as well and if you have if you're not making money then you find it difficult to reinvest in developing your supply chain because you don't have the money to develop your supply chain uh, add that to a more what i would say nationalistic approach coming out of some countries where people now feel the supply chain has gone out of control in terms of its width and we need to bring it back in-house and therefore we need to make sure our supply chain is at a local level rather than at an international level. Okay. And that 
will probably fundamentally change if that continues that approach, how the world has operated over the last hundred years. Because if you look at most things you now have, it probably says at the back of it, made in China, for example. Mm. Suddenly now have to adopt a strategy where that has to say made in the UK or made in France. Firstly, you don't you may not have that capability to provide those services at a local level because you don't have that skill set because you've not focused on it for 10, 20, 30, 50 years. Yep. So trying try to train somebody to do those components may take five, 10 years in the first place. At that same time, that will have a knock-on effect on your ability to produce components and parts required for your industry. Mm-hmm. So ultimately, what something, something will have to give. You know, do we try and recover and develop and go forward, or do we try to fundamentally change the way our industry works as a whole? And I, I think that probably will be more political mm. than business-led. Uh, uh, made, you, you've hit the nail on the head, and it's so true. And especially, like you said, with the whole crisis management team having to deal with two. And I love the element of one is man-made, <laughs> the other is an act of God. It's so, so true. And it, it's, it's a, it, it, if you look at it from that, you know, it's COVID-19, it, yeah. you know, we it is what it is and it has to be dealt with. And I think under normal circumstance, it will still be fundamentally a big impact on the economy, but I think mm. it can, with some time, it can be managed. Mm. I think it's just the fact that that happened at the same time as yeah. the Brexit exit is taking place. Mm. I think it's just meant that it's an unfortunate timing of these two issues to collide at the same time. And some countries at the end of this process will be, will come out and be winners and some ultimately will come out as losers and that's yeah. just the way the world operates and we no, just have to make sure whatever company you work for in whatever country you're located you just want to be on the right side of the curve don't you really <laughs> no honestly man no you, you're spot on and 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 i think like you said time will tell i mean one thing definitely for sure 20 30 years down the line people in the history books will be reading about this and they think how did these people survive you know we just sat at home and waited <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, yes, I, I think historians looking back in this period, I think from probably 2015, yeah. something fundamentally went wrong with the human race during that period, <laughs> uh, because a lot of what you see is just, you know, when you think, I, I don't believe it anymore, yeah. and then something, no, I don't believe, you know, it's like a Donald Trump tweet, is it? It just gets more unbelievable on a daily basis. <laughs> Uh, okay um, okay finally my last question because I, first of all really Ahmed I really appreciate your time and I don't want to how would they say abuse of this um, privilege so my final question to you Ahmed is if you had not become a project manager what profession would you have found yourself what I would have liked to find myself or what I think I would have found myself oh, go for what you have liked because we all have our little inner desires but go for it yes you, you know, funnily enough, even before I joined Airbus, I always yeah. felt I would be a pilot. So maybe there, there was always that underlying, and, and I think partly it's because, may God have mercy on his soul, um, one of my granddads um, many years ago was a pilot. Mm. I recall hearing the stories about him. Mm. And my father-in-law, in fact, used to be an, an, an airline engineer for that particular pilot as well. Wow. So... Yeah, so it's, um, so I, I think it's always been somewhere in the back of it. Nice. Um, 
but at the same time I, at the same time i always felt maybe i could be a farmer as well so there's <laughs> <laughs> a big disconnect between a farmer and a and, and a, a pilot oh. but i think professions probably most appeal to me at a sentimental level mm. and uh, although I, I don't think now pilot probably is practical who knows about farming though? You never know. <laughs> no, farming, you can never go wrong. Even though here in the UK, they have people who are complaining about the supply chain, you know, choking them, they have a cheap price. But as long, if a country can feed itself, you'll always value, you know, the farmers. So that's definitely the case. I agree with you. And and it, there's some kind of simplicity of peace of mind of just sitting back and, you know, enjoying the life. I think it's just being in connect with nature, you know, and, and again, maybe it's, again, it's something that links to my grandparents. I was told one of my granddad owned a, a, land, a farming land back home. So maybe. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's embedded. <laughs> I, can't, I can't avoid it. Well, one thing for you, for sure, if you ever did decide to become a farmer, because of your skills in procurement, you know where to get all your supplies. Ain't no one going to mess with you on price. That's definitely the case, honestly. <laughs> you would hope so. <laughs> no, no, honestly, Ahmed, it, it has been a pleasure. Is there anything else you want to add before we conclude our session today? No, it's really been good talking to you, Mohammed, and I, I genuinely hope that these useful podcasts that you do do benefit the wider community and those listening on board, especially the younger generation who, you know, um, some of us growing up at the time, we didn't have this capability to listen to podcasts and learn from those that have walked the walk. And just having somebody to give you that extra guidance of, by the way, this is the route that I've taken. Yeah. And if you're going to follow my route, these are the pitfalls you can avoid. It's always very useful. You know, I'm a firm believer that helping the next person one day will benefit you down the line somewhere as well. So whatever we can do, whatever I can do to help anybody who needs some help, well, they can by all means provide my contacts and try and reach out and I'll see what I can do for everybody I can help. Ahmed, honestly, you've been a star and I really appreciate this. And I will, how would I say, give you a shout out and I will make sure I'll share your details for any one of my listeners who want to enter the world of procurement. Honestly, thanks. Thanks again. And I just want to say um, peace and love for now. You take care, yeah? You look after yourself. Take care. Right, all the best. Well, that's all, folks. Thank you for listening to my podcast, which is simply the reflections of a nomad consultant living life on a day-by-day basis. I just want to conclude by saying I appreciate the love and support you guys are showing me. Until the next time, peace and love.